0: We know the light from the sun is so important to us today. What is really the evolution of our sun and how it has affected
1: life here on Earth? The lack of oxygen was one of the most important conditions to start biological molecules. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Chief
0: Scientist at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. On this season of Gravity Assist, we're looking for life beyond Earth. I'm here with Dr. Vladimir Arapitian, and he's an astrobiologist at the Goddard Space Flight Center. In addition to that, he's a full professor at American University. Vladimir has been analyzing solar storms and how they affect planets. So today, we're going to talk about the effect of our sun on life here on this planet, and what it tells us about possible life on other planets. Welcome, Vladimir. Thank you, it's great to be here. You know, we think of the sun as a constant, you know, constantly shining in in, in the same way. But is that really true?
1: Well, our sun is a magnetic star. From time to time, large bundles of magnetic field emerge to the solar surface and form sunspots, the regions of enhanced magnetic field that causes activity known as active regions. Strong magnetic field in these regions move due to the surface convection and at some point can generate magnetic tornadoes and hurricanes that can generate flares by transforming magnetic energy into heat and kinetic energy through magnetic reconnection or by snapping and reconnecting magnetic field lines. So, field lines break and rejoin fast and expel billions of tons of materials unleashed Um, in an ejection called the coronal mass ejection. As these coronal mass ejections travel to Earth and other planets, they disturb their magnetic bubbles called magnetospheres and generate magnetic disturbances known as magnetic storms.
0: So this is really an exciting field for us, you know. In fact, you can see the excitement that's going on in the Sun with these solar storms, so to speak, by looking at a variety of our satellite data that's online. So we know that the Earth and the Sun are about 4.6 billion years old. But what do we know about the young Sun, and what was it like?
1: How active was it? It was an extremely magnetically active star, uh, uh, rotating up to 10 times faster than today, uh, producing large star spots, you know, sun spots, with the size of 10% of its surface, and generating large and frequent flares. We see super flares on young stars uh, in abundance from Kepler mission, and recently uh, we found um, a couple of super flares from Cap 1 City, a twin star uh, of our sun at the time when life started on Earth.
0: And when you talk about super flares, how big are they? What are we really talking about?
1: Well, uh, the super flares can be as, uh, uh, as, as energetic as 100 times more energetic than the largest solar flare ever observed on our sun today, in current times.
0: So just how important was the young sun to life here on Earth?
1: Well, it was an essential component in producing life because life needs three essential requirements. The first requirement is to have liquid water, and um, the sun was also the one important contributor to that because it produced uh, greenhouse gases. The sun was a fainter star. It was a magnetically active star, but was 30% fainter than today. So the so-called faint young sun's paradox was in place, how to explain um, the, the uh, liquid water under the young sun when it's supposed to be an icy bowl. So therefore, uh, we think that the sun produced abundant nitrous oxide, uh, one of the gases that helped to heat it to the temperatures to allow liquid water. The second requirement is to have a uh, chemistry in an atmosphere that can eventually be broken into the those complex molecules. Those requirements are, uh, uh, are important in order to accumulate those molecules and make them mature to the complexity, become more and more complex on the surface, so it's, it's, it's a complex process.
0: We know that early life started on Earth about 3.8 billion years ago, but the atmosphere at that time had little or no oxygen. What else is happening to that early Earth and the life that may have started here on Earth? That's an amazing question.
1: The point is that uh, the lack of oxygen was one of the most important conditions to start biological molecules because uh, oxygen oxidizes you know the simple molecules and doesn't help to create complexity complex molecules uh, need a little uh, oxygen like carbon monoxide for instance instead of carbon dioxide so We say that the atmosphere was mildly reducing, meaning that it had some hydrogen, it had carbon dioxide, a little bit methane, um, nitrogen that was one essential component of life, and that helped to create the major gases like uh, hydrogen cyanide, the feedstock molecule of life, formaldehyde, and, and other molecules out of it that should be present abundantly in the gas phase, in atmospheres. So the future observations, we need to look for those signatures. And then later on, when the life started, when the chemistry became biology, that created um, uh, methanogens, the simple organisms, as you uh, uh, correctly stated, that basically didn't need any oxygen. They um, uh, absorbed carbon dioxide and released methane. That's why they called methanogens.
0: What well, sounds like, you know, this uh, this breaking apart and recombination can generate some really poisonous gases. How does life come out of that?
1: Hydrogen cyanide is a really poisonous gas. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the matter of national security, you know. <laughs> today you cannot buy it in stores. <laughs> but uh, it turns out that this hydrogen cyanide if you add up to the simple molecules you create more and more complexity. The poison early in life becomes treasure of life today.
0: So how do we know so far back that the sun was really active?
1: How do we tease that out? Well, that's the fantastic question. And the point is that uh, large flares produce coronal mass ejections that ignite solar energetic particles. And those energetic particles penetrate into the atmosphere. They break molecules and they create the carbon carbon fourteen isotopes. So uh, out of oxygen and nitrogen. So and this carbon fourteen the um, uh, uh, oxygen creates the carbon dioxide and absorbed by the trees. So we see traces in the, in the tree rings. Wow,
0: that's interesting. We always knew that the tree rings, you know, where you see a ring um, every year that the tree uh, lives and it grows, Uh, The thickness of that ring tells us a lot about that year's input, which is the sunlight and these heavy particles that come streaming through our atmosphere. So during the star's life, they're very active when they're young. What happens next?
1: Oh, then they lose their steam uh, because the sun rotates uh, slower. It produces much weaker magnetic field, so produces smaller flares. Uh, Less frequently, the sun becomes a mature star. Any mature system behaves a little bit quietly. So that's what we have today.
0: But even today, you know, a quiet star, we know that our sun has really put
1: out some fantastic coronal mass ejections. Recent observations of mature solar analogs, like our sun today, showed uh, the the generation of very strong flares 100 times stronger than we observe today that suggests that in the future we can observe a catastrophic event and we need to understand its impact on our uh, the whole system on earth system starting from magnetosphere to our civilization that can produce the large ionospheric currents all the way producing the changes in the um, uh, stratospheric ozone that will increase the um, the radiation, the extreme uh, UVB and UVC emission uh, coming to the surface and actually affecting crops, affecting a lot of life forms on our planet because that can last, the effect can last up to a year or even longer.
0: Do you think we can find a young Earth in our local neighborhood of stars?
1: Well, that's an amazing, amazing question, and um, we're looking for. So I hope that, uh, uh, well, we need to look through K2, the extended mission of Kepler, that looked at the, the stellar, uh, young stellar clusters. Unfortunately, uh, Kepler couldn't observe it because it was a pretty small telescope. And uh, also, you know, stellar variability of those young stars uh, 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 mimics um, the, the, the planetary uh, planetary signatures too. So we need to work a little bit harder in order to uncover the signatures of exoplanets around young stars.
0: So this is really a fascinating topic. We really need to do uh, uh, looking at the sun and how it has evolved and how our planets evolved, and therefore match that with how life here evolved on Earth. And then go find places near our sun, near our uh, neighborhood of the galaxy where we expect a lot of planets to be be created, and find that object that is not just Earth-size but Earth-like. So we have some exciting observations coming up. We have a whole variety of stars in our galaxy. Are some better for creating solar systems and looking for life than others?
1: The point is that first, the planet needs to be in the habitable zone. And uh, the uh, the cool stars, smaller stars, they have much narrow habitable zones. The planet needs to be much, much closer. That means that they should be exposed to the huge fluxes of X-ray and extreme UV emission and the flare emission that is bad for. Too much of a good thing, it's a bad thing. We talk about habitable zone, but what does that really mean? Well, the habitable zone, classically, originally was introduced as a, a shell around a star uh, where it's so-called Goldilocks zone, where the temperature is the, where the, the it's not too cold and not too hot, allows the, the the water to to exist in a liquid state, but Uh, Then later we found that that's only one condition, and then you need to have the zone not too close to the star to make sure that the the planet has a thick atmosphere. So therefore, that's another factor, the space weather important factor in addition to the classical habitable zone.
0: So small stars have have problems of of having the planets too close. What about the really large stars?
1: Oh, well, we're talking about the, the, the stars a little bit hotter than uh, than the so-called M-dwarfs, than cold cold stars, like K-type stars. So the stars are slightly cooler than our sun, probably a sweet spots for life, because the planets in habitable zones are a little bit closer at the distance of, might be, uh, a Mercury or between Mercury and Venus. Um, but still, I mean, they exposed to the, you know, the the a uh, the, the lot of radiation, which is a good thing. But still, they can preserve their thick atmospheres, which is a a big big requirement. Well, what about the A and B stars, the really big and really hot stars? Or A and B stars, uh, they're the one of the worst cases for life because they produce so much emission and so the habitable zone should be located farther away where you don't see any materials. You need to have some material you now to build a planet first and then uh, uh, a, and have essential chemistry uh, for these planets to, to have life. So I would imagine that, you know, they should have very, very little material to form planets in the first place.
0: So when we're out there looking for life at different stars, we have to really be choosy about what stars could actually support a solar system where life may exist.
1: Absolutely. A star is the first clue for life on an exoplanet. First, for the existence of an exoplanet, and then life and habitability.
0: Vladimir. I always like to ask my guests to tell me what was the event or the place or person or thing that really got them so excited that it, it forced them to become the scientists they are today. I call that event a gravity assist. So, Vladimir, what was your gravity assist?
1: So, my gravity assist had in my childhood three massive brains, I would say. The first one is the head of the amateur astronomy club when I was 10 year old that uh, I was infected with astronomy, and Mars was one of the amazing planets that I was dreaming about to understand whether life is possible on Mars, or was possible on Mars. So, and uh, as soon as I, I, I graduated uh, from the university, um, the second you, uh, you know, the person who um, made my life to turn around was Mbar Tsumyan, who was the head of the Burakan Observatory in Armenia, so that uh, I turned my attention to the young, to young stars and eventually, I realized at some point that the s- uh, sun is a star. And so if I know the life of young stars, I can uncover the life of a young young sun. And the third person who made a big difference was still in Colgate at Los Alamos National Laboratory, who passed away a few years ago. But, so those three people uh, created uh, this environment that made it impossible not to think about astrobiology. <laughs> That's great.
0: Well, join me next time as we continue our journey to look for life beyond Earth. I'm Jim Green, and this is your Gravity Assist.